Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the LiveView optimized DOM patching that we've talked about before that uh, Chris McCord has been very excited about, and rightly so, well, that has now been merged into main. So hopefully we'll be seeing that in some upcoming LiveView release. But people have been testing it out and reporting their results online. Some people are getting improvements in the range of five times to 30 times the speed improvement. As a reminder, this doesn't speed up the network transfer time, but just the browser's DOM patching time, which can be slow on large pages. This is certainly something to look forward to, and I can't wait to see what happens. All right, next up, Jose Valim published a new blog post on the Dashbit blog called Supercharge Your App, Latency and Rendering Optimizations in Phoenix Live View. It's a long post, but it's really great. Right? It's, it chronicles all of the optimizations that Live View has done to make it good, <laughs> <laughs> to make it great even. LiveView's unique integration between the server and the client allows it to drastically optimize both latency and bandwidth, right? Because you have both sides of the connection here that you control, leading to user experiences that are faster and smoother than any other combo out there. Throwing off the gloves were the best. All right. The goal of the article is to document all of the optimizations that they have designed and employed over the last five years. Five years? Five years of LiveView? Wow. Is that true? It makes sense when I think of when we started using it, Cade. <laughs> Golly. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> and as we will learn, most optimizations here come for free for LiveView developers and are only made possible thanks to the Erlang VM's ability to hold millions of stateful WebSocket connections at once. And then he goes on to go into each of those seven optimizations. I'll list them briefly here. Great article, though. You should go check it out. Splitting statics from Dynamics. Next is rendering trees and fingerprints. Got it. Okay. Change tracking. That's another one. Optimizing for comprehensions. That was critical. I remember that. That allowed like more natural Elixir code to be optimized. And then they introduced live components. And then they introduced tree sharing in live components. So in other words, if you're rendering a thousand tweets, you only have to send that one component like once the common parts of it. So that was cool. And then lastly, the change tracking revisited, which is all about this recent 5x improvement that just landed in Maine. All right. Well, in preparation of that p- blog post, <laughs> you can imagine there's probably lots of JSON and Heeks templates that he needed to render. So just a side note that it is pretty neat that you can highlight JSON and Heeks pretty quickly with Xdocs and all the thing that uses, you know, Xdocs. By just dropping in a couple of packages called makeup JSON and makeup EEX as dependencies. And syntax highlighting just works. So very nice. I think Dashbit uses the nimble publisher workflow for their, their blog post, which works with markdown parsing and all that kind of stuff. So this makeup dependencies are just adding syntax highlighting to that AST. So just dropping those in just kind of makes it work, or it's very low effort. Xdocs, I think, is literally just drop in though. In a previous episode, we mentioned Chris McCord's Elixir Comp keynote, where he demonstrated some of the cool new dev tool features. One of those was that command click in the browser to open the code editor on that line of the component. And we were joking about how we could not figure that out. <laughs> well, Jose responded in a post, I guess you call it now, on a website not called Twitter, that that functionality is not yet released. It is opened by the server, and we're figuring out the best place for that alongside the logging stuff. Mm. Smiley face. So that's cool, and it's something to look forward to. But if you're very impatient, somebody has released a way to do it already. So listener Justin Tormey shared with us that he created a little library to do this called Click2Component. It has a little GIF in the repository of how he's already implemented that. So check that out if you're interested. And next up, we're going to be talking about the live book release week. So that was really cool. With the new live book release 0.11, there was a lot of fanfare as the team worked on a release week. Each day of the week for like weekday, five days, they're highlighting some impressive or cool or really helpful new feature that landed in live book. We'd talked about day one, but just to recap so we can have them all together. So day one, 
was remote execution smart cells. And what that means is there was a new smart cell that made it much easier to execute a function from a live book connecting to a remote machine, like a Phoenix server on another node, and connect those up and then be able to execute functions over on that other node and return the results. And then, you know, I could do something cool like chart some graphs or, you know, display or operate on that data. That was day one. That was pretty neat. Day two, they talked about speech to text with Whisper and how timestamping and streaming and parallelism can work with all that. So here's a quote from the post. It says, when we announced Bumblebee, a collection of pre-trained models inspired by hugging face transformers, the Whisper speech to text model quickly became one of the favorite and most used within the Elixir community. And I think one of the reasons is because even when it's running in CPU only mode, that's still pretty decent. You know, I like you'll get a three, four X, probably more with GPU, but with CPU, it is bearable. <laughs> and so there are three new features in the Whisperer integration. The first one is timestamping. So now they include timestamps on the audio segment. The other one is now they allow for streaming. So the previous version of their Whisper model was limited to 30 seconds of audio, leaving it up to the user to break apart their audio. Not fun. But the new version is capable of streaming both the uh, inputs and outputs. So you can give it an arbitrary long file now, and it should just work. And then lastly, parallelism. So in addition to streaming, files with more than 30 seconds are split and batched into sections according to the neural network batch size. So a batch size of, of 10, you know, up to five minutes of audio can be processed in parallel. Thanks to this, we expect our models to perform inference in an in order of magnitude faster compared to open ai's implementation boom eat it open ai <laughs> when just transcribing larger files on the gpu it's pretty nice but yeah that that's one of the things i think is really interesting about nx and what we can do with elixir and doing things in parallel right on multiple gpus within the same machine to across nodes and really farming it out there's a lot of power there i think we're just starting to tap it <laughs> I'm thinking about all these blog posts of tutorials on how to do this whisper model with live book and live view. And you got to split this up and you got to do all these things. All those blog posts need to have like a big banner on top that says, please don't read this anymore. <laughs> go get the latest live view. Yeah. Live go book. get the light. The, yeah. Go get the upgrade. You're going to be thankful, you know? <laughs> yeah. Another feature doesn't sound as cool, but is also important was the introduction of file integration. So while it's not that cool, it's important because you always need some data. And one of the easier ways to provide that data is through a file. So with this release of Livebook, files are officially supported now. You know, some things you could do would be upload your video or audio file for the speech to text like they're talking about. You could upload a database to operate on it. You've got uploading CSVs and spreadsheets. So there's all kinds of ways you can get data in there now. And so with File uploads, a boring feature, but super important and super handy to have. Yeah, drag and drop an S3 file. That's crazy. It'll just stream it. Amazing. Yeah, and then I didn't know you could just drop in a SQLite database and start operating on it, you know, query it. and <laughs> That's really neat. It's like low-key flexing right there. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and next up, Livebook Day 4, integration with Snowflake and Microsoft SQL Server. With this release of Livebook... Two new database integrations were added. Snowflake is like a data lake, big data kind of thing. It's a service. And then SQL Server. So altogether, that makes it... So Livebook now has built-in integrations for seven different databases and data warehouses. That's Postgres, MySQL, SQL Server, SQLite, Google BigQuery, Amazon Athena, and Snowflake. So the Snowflake connection is supported through ADBC, which is the Arrow database connectivity that's in a hex package. We've actually talked about that before when it first came out. And this means that data can be loaded directly into Explorer and the data frames there. So like think spreadsheets. It made me think, oh, does that mean SQL Server database adapters are ready for just normal Phoenix apps, like I could just do that. And I'm not sure of the answer to that. But this SQL Server support was contributed from the community by Simon McConnell. It was specifically adding it to Livebook. That's pretty impressive. You know, like you've got data in all these different places and you need to be able to munge it and analyze it and cross-reference things. So Livebook becomes even more helpful in that way. 
All right, and last day, day five, the biggest news of all of them. Snowflake is small change compared to this one. We've got Vim and Emacs key bindings now in Livebook. <laughs> that is just, it's amazing. All that means is you can make fun of Livebook and trap your friends in editors that they can't escape now and all sorts of fun things. But you got that Vim muscle memory? It's a live book supports you. You like your Emacs? You you can like it there too. Now <laughs> you don't have to be stuck in VS Code world. And by VS Code, I mean Monaco editor. It's the thing that powers VS Code. Yeah, that's it. All right, that lo- that rounds out live book. All the live book things, and I'm sure that we'll have another set of exciting stuff that comes out in live book's future couple of months because they love their release weeks, and it's really exciting. I love it. But this week we got some really great things. File integration, better whisper, speech-to-text stuff, remote execution, smart cells, snowflake and big data things, and then my favorite, Vim key bindings. Amazing. So the Ash framework added a new Ash SQLite library, and it is in an initial beta release, so there might be some issues, but that's something to look forward to if you're interested in, in SQLite and you're using Ash. And next up, OpenWeb 2.10. Dot zero was released. So going way back to August, there was an RC phase that began and there was a number of different RC releases and now it's official. So this is the new open web. And when we talked with Parker Selbert last, he had talked about how he was excited about the new features that were coming in open web. And so now that is ready. So we have a link to the change log, which is kind of like a blog post. It goes through all these different release candidates and showing off some of these new features. So if you're using open web, Definitely want to check that out and learn about all the cool new stuff that's available for monitoring jobs and analytics and everything that's built in there. Yeah, yeah. The big deal is that this new charts type to search kind of filtering, in my opinion, kind of rebuilds open web entirely. It's it's really great. This is definitely one that you want to upgrade to. All right, next up, it's a new NeoVim Elixir plugin by Emmanuel Tuzeri that was released. It's called Elixir-Extras.NVim. And there's two functions in it right now, and it's still new, but you can try it out. The two functions are that you can look up xdocs via a picker instead of the usual LSP on hover kind of thing. So if you're just trying to think and you're in your editor and you're like, "Ah, I can't remember which one of those enum functions I wanted, you throw up the picker, you fuzzy find to your function, and on the right side will be the docs for that. And they're rendered as as they usually would in that kind of Vimy markdown highlighted kind of stuff. This is going to work out better, I think, because that hover floating window is usually kind of small. And those docs can be kind of long because we have amazing docs. So this picker just gives you a bigger window into those docs, which is really cool. It's just a different way to explore it. And then also there's a feature here where if there are multiple clauses for a function, because we pattern match off that because we love pattern matching, this plugin will mark those clauses in the gutter and visibly show the first and the last functions. That's a nice little helper just to track where you're at and if you're looking at the first or last functions and i thought that was interesting too those first and last because usually your first well it's like your setup function almost right like you're going to adapt the way that the the data looks and then send it through the actual function which might be among the last or your last function being like your error you know pass through kind of thing anyway i thought that was really interesting if you're a vim user go check it out Next up, a Postgres tip we came across for setting a human readable label for a connection session. So in the connection string, you can actually set an application name, which will return when you're running pgstat activity. And this will help you differentiate your application connections between other processes. You can also set it during a query, but just know that's not as performant. And you can also even set it in the PSQL client if that's how you roll. So it could be helpful to specify a particular application name while you're debugging and get information about that. And next up, PG Bouncer 1.21 is set to get some support for prepared statements. So that appears to be the release that's coming soon. Prepared statements, this is talking about SQL statements, is probably one of the most requested features for PG Bouncer. And using prepared statements together with PG Bouncer can reduce the CPU load on your system And in synthetic benchmarks, this feature was able to increase query throughput anywhere from 15% to 250% based on the workload. Currently, if you look at the Postgrex docs, and if they say, hey, if you're using this with PG Bouncer, you should turn off prepared statements by setting them to be unnamed statements. So you're not getting that 
optimization. With PG Bouncer adding support for this, then maybe one day Ecto will no longer have to disable prepared statements when using PG Bouncer. Uh, sounds like good news. All right, last up, rounding out the day, we've got one conference that's coming up. We have the ElixirConf Europe 2024 conference, and the call for talks is open. Uh, I know all these have just happened, I think, right? So already looking to next year. So we got some links to their websites, and the dates for ElixirConf Europe 2024 is April 18th through the 19th. It is physically in Lisbon, but it's also physically in your heart as well <laughs> via virtual conferences and streaming videos and you know the whole thing you know how that goes 18th to the 19th of april is where it is physically in lisbon though so if you're thinking about giving a talk that might be a good one to go to and that's it for the news elixir and phoenix are incredible they make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Leandro Pereira. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> yes, Leandro. So thank you for joining us. Recently, you spoke at ElixirConf and you were talking about Beacon, which I'm excited to talk about. So Beacon being a CMS, it's been teased and talked about for some time. And we're like, wait, Leandro, we want to talk to you about this. And you're like, wait, hold on. I've got to get my ElixirConf talk. So you've done that. Good job there. We wanted to talk about that, but also some of the other questions we had, other ways we're thinking about it. Looking forward to that conversation. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Thank you for having me. I live in Canada. I'm from Brazil, actually, but I'm living in Canada. And I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. I have been working on the R&D department for Dockyard for almost eight months now. And I have been working full-time. Uh, on Beacon and all the projects related to Beacon. But my main focus is leading the Beacon project. Nice, yes. And so I know Beacon was started by Mike Bins, and we'll talk more about that. But I am a little bit curious just about your Elixir journey. Like, so you've been at Dockyard for eight months. How did you come to Elixir? I guess it was because of Jose Valin's influence. I used to be a Ruby developer back then. Jose Valin is Brazilian as I am, and that, that was a motivation to learn and know more about, about Elixir. And I used to follow Valin works on the Rails core team. So it was kind of a natural transition from Ruby to Elixir. And then I could say that I, you know, I really enjoy working with functional programming and Elixir. It made way more sense to reason about the code, to reason about the project. And then I, seven years ago, I started working with Elixir and I never stopped. And I really enjoy working with Elixir. And I also started working with LiveView in the very early days, you know, in the first, one of the first public versions, I started working and using LiveView in a project. Yeah, and it was amazing to see how LiveView made so much progress since those first versions. When we were recording the news, we were talking about this article from Jose, which he recently posted about five years of LiveView, and he was chronicling some of the optimizations that have come in that time to make it be so performant. And we were just talking about that, like five years, wow, you know, it really has been that long. I could say then it's been five years or maybe four and a half since I've touched a spa, which I think is wonderful that I have not had to do front-end JavaScript like that. <laughs> so I think we can all thank Jose and Chris McCord for and, and the community for all their contributions there. So first, let's just establish what it is we're talking about when we say CMS, because that can mean a customer management system, or it can mean a content management system. So you know, here we're talking about content, right? Maybe you can give us a little intro to what Beacon is managing for us. 
Beacon is about managing your content and exposing that content for you. So let's say you have a live view or a Phoenix project. You most likely need to expose a marketing site or a landing page. So Beacon is about managing and showing that, that content for you, for your project. Nice. Yeah. And so when I think of Beacon, and especially when I was watching your talk, when you're showing some of these really cool features that I, I'm looking forward to talking more about, I kind of thought, all right, where do I position Beacon CMS in the different offerings where I could say, I need a marketing, I need landing, I, I need you know a place to put some blog content. I think it's 90% of the web is like WordPress. And then there's also static sites, right? And like we have Nimble Publisher in Elixir for doing some easy static pages and things like that. So Beacon is like, in between on those two or leaning more towards the WordPress side, maybe in my mind, maybe you can help me think about that. And where do you see Beacon fitting? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Just to start off, usually we say that if you're using WordPress or Numble Publisher or whatever solution and that works for you, you know, just keep using it. The idea of Beacon is you can have a, a small website, like a blog, personal blog, or even a more complex website where you have multiple people contributing to the content. So if you need something small, Beacon's gonna work for you. Or if you need something more like WordPress where you need to write components and multiple pages and you have a designer or a design team and multiple developers, Beacon's gonna also work for that range of solutions. And Beacon is not a static site generator. Technically, you can generate static content. And that's a good question because I cannot say the name of this company, but there is a company in the Elixir ecosystem that we have been talking about, and they they need this feature to generate the, the static content of the pages. We can talk about more of this later, but it's technically possible since Beacon is extensible. So not only you can have the sites, small sites or big sites, you can also extend Beacon. You can extend the admin interface. You can extend how Beacon performs, how Beacon generate the content. Every aspect of the life cycle is exposed. So you can extend it. If Beacon by default does not work for you, can extend it. And I would say that Beacon is an alternative to WordPress and other CMSs. WordPress has a very big ecosystem. It works very well. But one issue with WordPress is that you need to work on the infrastructure to have some caching layers, some other work that you need to do in order to make your site perform well. And by using LiveView, we can deploy a website in five minutes and the performance is just, just great. LiveView works very well for SEO. We can talk more about this later, but in short, you can have a site running with a very fast rendering times with good performance. All right, so we know what kind of CMS it is, but this is also kind of a, well, I don't know if crowded is the right word, but there's lots of existing solutions out there. First one that comes to mind is WordPress, right? And then I know that there's a probably 20 handfuls of static site generators where there are strictly static sites, right? Where do you think that Beacon fits in here? What, what are some differentiators between all of those? Why would somebody choose something like Beacon? One of the features or benefits of using Beacon is that you have a Elixir project in your stack. So let's say you are you are running Phoenix, you are running a Elixir project. You do have knowledge, you have the infrastructure to run Elixir projects. So let's say you are building a product using Phoenix and LiveView and any other Elixir technology. Why use another stack instead of just using Elixir? You can just deploy a Elixir application, a Phoenix application, 
And even if your product is using Phoenix, you can just drop Beacon into that project and expose public sites and public pages. So let's say you have a private Phoenix application with private pages for a SaaS or for your product, and you want to expose a landing page or a marketing site for that product. You can just drop in the Beacon library into your project and start using it. So you don't need to start a new project. You don't need to learn about WordPress, PHP, the, all the infrastructure, because you already have that working, right? So you can just start using Beacon. That is interesting, because that was actually one of my questions, right? Is Beacon something where I deploy it as a standalone thing, or is it something that I can pull into my Elixir application? And it sounds like you, you could do it both ways, right? It sounds like I could deploy it as its own standalone. Here's my content management system. Here's my CMS with all my blog posts. And then I can also pull it into my existing Elixir app, which I think is really interesting. Because when I think of all these different options, like David, you mentioned the plethora of static site generators, right? There's just, there's so many, and there's always new ones, right? But sometimes you want content that is dynamic, right? And most of the time, I think that that data is coming from my app. And so being able to have Beacon be in my app, it could have access to some of that that, that dynamic data that I want it to be able to, to pull in and show. So I think that's really interesting. I wasn't clear on that before from your presentation so that, yes, it can be dropped into an Elixir app. That is really nice because like the last thing I want to do is like work on this product and then go build another front end to market it in some other language with some <laughs> other static generator. And so that's really cool. You could You could tie into your own data. You could like you could put cool statistics in there that are maybe a little more live than they would have otherwise been because you have access to the repo. Yes, yes, that's right. That's a good observation. You can use it as site generators, but the problem is most of the times, like you said, you need dynamic content. We are working on a feature that we are, we are going to expose what we call the runtime data, the data source in the admin interface. So... Let's say you have a page and that page is loading some data from your application or from a API or it doesn't matter. It just It's just a Elixir function. You can go to the admin interface and just write the Elixir function to load the data for that page. So you don't even need to deploy your website after change the data, the data search for, for the page. And that is also one of the benefits of using Beacon because we want to avoid deployments. So we want to make it work at runtime more than at compile time, which means you can change the pages, components, data source, all the information for your page, just hit button, just publish that those changes and it goes live. Let me make sure I'm understanding this then. So if I have a template that's like a pricing page, for example. And my template in there is a Heeks markup, right? And I forget which syntax you're doing, if you're doing like the mustaches or the standard Heeks like interpolation, but you interpolate a variable name in there, like for every price point, render this component or something and pass the price into it. Are you saying that now, you know, in addition to just that template, I can provide a, a variable above the template somewhere it says these are my price points and they're just they're just kind of like in there and then that that template will be fed those assigns essentially right as it's rendered is that is that it yes yes that's right and which means you don't need to be elixir developer to update the content of your site using your example you have a price someone from the from the marketing or from another department can go to the admin interface and say, hey, this is a different value here. So it has to be updated. So just change the value and publish the changes. I know I've worked at companies before where the sales team is a separate group of people, right? And they like, we need a site that we can change whenever we want to and that we can run a, a you know, like a new ad campaign or something like that. One, I think they kind of need to be able to feel empowered to do their own job. I think about like, yes, you know, WordPress has 
tons, like it's a very mature ecosystem, right? With all these different plugins. Everybody installs the good old SEO booster. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's like, why, why does it start off poorly designed by default? I don't know, but. <laughs> the image optimizer, the, the Yoast plugin. If it, even if it's like a static site, right? And it's markdown files, then the barrier to making a content change is quite a bit higher. Like they have to be familiar with markdown syntax. Maybe they're even doing it through the GitHub web page because they don't have a an editor locally anyway because like you know they don't need one normally for their job and then how do they get that deployed then they have to like you know create a pr and merge it and it's a mess yeah this whole deployment cycle it's almost as if like you guys looked at iex and you're like what if i could make that a website (laughs) (laughs) you just like copy and paste like modules in there and it's just like all right just just compiles it right away and again goes goes and that and that's your real that's your runtime now you know obviously you guys do a, a whole lot more than that well, that's that's pretty incredible it's been a long time since i've been in wordpress but i remember that wordpress really uh has no qualms about exposing php to you yeah <laughs> and letting you do horrible things with it yes. yeah <laughs> i i didn't realize that beacon was going to go into that direction as well though that like we're going to expose that elixir to you like you got you got straight up heeks templates in there and I thought it was just going to be Heeks, but now you're saying like it's just going to be regular Elixir too, where you can just provide it like a and components, yeah, yeah, and just com- and everything. But that is pretty cool that it's all in runtime, so it it decouples from that whole deployment cycle, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's nice because it's up to the developer or project manager what he wants to expose, because changing Heeks template may be may not be easy for people that don't know HTML and Elixir. So you can just decide, you know, this part of the template, this value or this assign will be exposed as a data source, as a runtime data source. So everyone can change that value. Or if you just want to use Higgs and don't want to use those uh, runtime assigns, you can just write the the whole Higgs template. So that's that's really up to you. And components works the same way. So let's say you have a design team. That team, that design team can write the components like call to action buttons and other components. And other people, developers or other people can just use those components in the Higgs templates. And we are also researching ways to load Phoenix components in the Markdown as well. So you could reuse the same components, the same Phoenix components in both Markdown and Higgs templates. Kind of like MDX. MDX has been very popular for React-based static site generators where you write in Markdown, but then Markdown technically allows HTML elements and they should pass through. And so they just kind of pick that up and just allow you to write <laughs> JSX in your markdown. That's really neat. Yeah, that's right. And I actually the MDX project was an inspiration for the other library that I created the MDEX. So you can see the <laughs> you know the similar names. <laughs> but the reason I created this project first was because we need to parse and convert more than you know 700 blog posts for the dockyard website and people have written blog posts for dockyard over 10 years so people have used different editors different style stylists and using earmark was not was not working we could not parse all the content and that's fine because that's you know the purpose of earmark is not to support the whole common mark specification, so which is which is fine, but we need to parse out all those blog posts, the old blog posts. So that's the reason I created that project, and it's using a Rust library under the hood that is able to parse uh, all the common mark specification. That's cool. I would love to turn and talk a little bit more about this other half of the project, or this this side, which is the admin side. As I understand, it's a separate admin project, and you're 
talk, you described it as something that you could expose only through a VPN, for instance. And so people might have to VPN into the the area where the admin interface is exposed. So it has no public access. And then they can make changes. And when they're published, then all of the public sites are get updated. Honestly, it was really fun just watching your talk where you SSH into a live server and, you know, running on fly. That was cool. (laughs) Yeah, I was like... Okay, let's hope that works. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was fun to demonstrate how it works. Just to clarify, when I mentioned that you can run the Beacon Live admin project behind a VPN, I was just trying to give an example, but you can run Beacon and the admin interface in the same project. That's how we are running the Docker website. We have Phoenix application and we have the Beacon and the admin project in the same Phoenix application. That depends on your infrastructure. So let's say, for example, you have a product that your users are spread over the globe. So you can deploy Beacon into multiple different data centers like Europe, in the US, or you know any other place. You can deploy the admin interface close to where you are. So you don't need to deploy the admin interface everywhere. So that's the reason we have two separate projects. And if you need to, let's say for security reasons, you can deploy the admin interface behind a VPN, but only if you need to, that's that's an option. So you can have some flexibility in the deployment of Beacon and admin interface. That makes sense. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I get the sense that all of the dynamic content is not stored in a database, right? Is it you're modifying these files that are written to a file system? Is that right? No, actually, all the data is is actually stored in the database. Okay. Pretty much all the templates. That's that's mostly all the data that we have for, for Beacon. That is for the Beacon part. The admin does not have a database. So the communication between the admin interface and all the beacon sites in the cluster goes through RPC calls. So when you write a new page and you save that page, you know that template is just a, just a string that is storing the database. And the reason is we don't want to force users to, let's say, start a new file system server or set up a different server to run beacon because most of the time is you already have a database running, right? So like we said before, you can just install the Beacon library and you most likely have a database. So it just works. It has to be as portable as possible. So you don't want to force users to manage a file system or any other kind of server. So then when I have my admin interface and I make a change, you were talking about a cluster and it sounds like the admin interface does an RPC call to all of the public servers. And is it just saying, hey, this template is updated? Is, is that the extent of the message, like a, through a little pub sub announcement, and then they'll just refetch it or expire their cache? Or like what happens there? Okay, so there's some processing there. The RPC call goes to the first site that, if, that Beacon Admin finds. So let's say you have a site deployed into multiple servers in your cluster. So admin, you find all those sites, but it's gonna send the RPC call to the first site that it finds. Because we assume that all the sites, even though they are deployed to different servers, they are all connected to the same database. Because because does not manage data replication for your database. If you want to, that's up to you. But Beacon's uh, admin is going to send this call to the first site that it finds. And that's that site you handle the call for, let's say, to create a new page or update a template or whatever action you're doing in the admin interface. And then between the nodes for, for the sites, we broadcast messages saying, hey, this page was updated. Internally, we use a ads table to restore some metadata for each page. And then 
when that node receives the message, it's going to update its own copy of that metadata. All right. So you gave the talk at ElixirConf. You went over a lot of details on how Beacon kind of works. We've been talking about people being exposed to code and Heeks templates, right? So you're, you're talking to a bunch of Phoenix developers like, all right, no problem. We're comfortable. This is my home. I've built my bed in it. This is nice, right? But when we talk about CMSs, the, the audience for that is generally a little bit different than just straight up developers. And those folks are typically a little bit more comfortable with what you see is what you get kind of editors. And so at the end of your presentation at ElixirConf, which everyone should go watch that, by the way, if you're listening to this episode, you should go watch that too. You demoed a Heeks template editor. Tell me what this is about. Yeah, that's that's our answer to exposing the page editor to non-technical users. So it's basically a drag and drop editor. But the difference, you know, comparing to WordPress or any other CMS is that editor understand Heeks templates. So let's say you go to the admin interface and then you create a new component. That component that you just created, you'll be exposed to the page builder. So you can just drag and drop that component into your page. So like we said before, someone can create a call to action button, a Phoenix component, and then someone else can just drag and drop that component into the page. That page, since it understands Hicks, you can either use the code editor or the page builder. They have two-way integration. You can just use the visual editor, which is nice because we can provide some other features. Beacon supports Tailwind by default. We can, for example, list the CSS classes for each element, or you can add or remove classes and attributes. It's really a visual editor for Higgs templates. So I'm imagining Livebook, and I'm imagining Beacon, and I'm looking at them both, and I see some similarities here, right? Both are editors, and there's, there's, yeah, I'm sure you know that Livebook has these things called smart cells, and I'm curious of what kind of borrowed ideas or heck, even code could go into Beacon and Livebook smart cells. So in your in your Beacon app, you have installed a plugin, and the plugin is about loading a data source from a Parquet file because we like pain, and we need to consume big data from somewhere, right? My mythical person that understands both Livebook and Beacon here, they've already used Livebook, and they can drag and drop now, as I've learned this week. They can drag and drop a Parquet file into Livebook and, and use Explorer to do some pivot tables. And now this person is in a Beacon CMS site and they want to be able to like render a bit of that, render a, t- a table of that. The smart cell stuff I imagine is going to be pretty similar. They could theoretically, right, with a lot of code here and hours and, and sweat, could, you know, install the same kind of thing into a Beacon site, drag and drop their Parquet file, which I imagine Beacon might throw up into S3 or something. I don't know. And then have a protocol slash API or whatever, a way for that to provide an interface for the editor to define what how they want that to render or something like that. Man, that could be really cool. Okay, sorry. I was just dreaming there for a second. <laughs> You're giving them a really big thing to implement there. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That could be pretty cool. It's fun that you mentioned Livebook because we... You know, actually, we have been researching ways to integrate and better ways to maybe integrate Livebook or Kino and Smart Cells into mm-hmm. the admin interface. We we have been discussing and researching if that works and makes sense. We want to provide you know different experience to create pages, so it would be nice to have Smart Cells to to create those pages. So, but I cannot promise that's going to be going to be implemented. Uh, we are still researching if that works, if it makes sense. And Lifebook is an inspiration for for Beacon. For example, the the code editor that we are using, we create a new library called Live Monco editor. Yeah, I remember that. It's based on the Lifebook editor. The Lifebook editor is an amazing job by Jonathan 
And we just extract some of that code into this library. So we could use a Monaco editor in the Beacon admin. We are gonna extend the live Monaco editor to support Hicks and maybe other features that make sense for Beacon, but it's mostly based on the Livebook editor. And there, there better be Vim key bindings in there too. Oh, I, I created an issue for that. As soon as I saw the, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw the, the new feature in Livebook, I was, Hey, I want these. <laughs> like I want to write pages using Vim key binds. Yeah. <laughs> There's an issue. I'm just kidding. In your presentation, you mentioned that the Heeks template editor is not available yet. Like it was a beta that you were kind of teasing and showing this is what we're working on. Can you give us any idea about when we might expect to see something like that being available? That's something we are working now. We are actively working into integrating the page builder into the admin interface because on the Elixir Conf talk, you can see it's a separate project but we are working to integrate into the live admin interface. So you can just click a button and switch between the code editor and the visual editor. That's how it's going to work. I cannot promise a day we are, because the problem is since we are doing research, sometimes you know things work and sometimes it just does not work. So we have to just, you know, forget what what we are doing and try again in a different way. So that's why I cannot promise dates, but we do have two milestones, one for each project, one for the Beacon project and another one for the live admin project. It's the milestone for the first public version, the 0.1 version. So the best way, I would say the best way to track the progress when Beacon is going to be released is to look at those milestones. And we are going to try to give some estimation, but it's not hard estimation. It, it can change. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to put on my hard hitting reporter hat on for a second. <laughs> We're talking about WordPress earlier and other static sites and how we're, how Beacon can kind of fit into the ecosystem of, of, sites like this, right? And this is all runtime oriented. So we're outside of that deployment hook. So I imagine a lot of things have to be held into memory. You mentioned ads tables earlier, that was, all that's in memory usually. And I got to wonder, have you guys run benchmarks that would compare a WordPress site that of similar, you know, functionality to what a beacon site, you know, would be and, and what the RAM requirements would be, what the CPU requirements would be for, for those? Yeah, we should have a blog post by December, by the end of this year, comparing Beacon to not only WordPress, but all the other popular CMS out there, mm -hmm. not only WordPress. I was trying to have some benchmark for the Elixir Conf talk, but turns out it's more complex than it sounds because the issue is there is no, let's say, perfect way to benchmark live view applications. Because you have the first request, the HTML, the HP request, and then you have mm -hmm. the upgrade to a WebSocket. Yeah. And so it's not straightforward to measure those requests. I was talking to Chris, uh, Chris McCart, how we can try to benchmark those requests, but we do not have an answer yet. But we are researching ways that we can, you know, explore this kind of benchmark between the CMSs and we are going to have a blog post on the Docker soon. We were talking about that before the show, how depending on how someone sets up their WordPress, they might load a whole bunch of different plugins and that may change, you know, the, the response characteristics, it'll change the memory requirements. So it's kind of like, well, for similar capabilities is kind of what you have to figure out what that looks like. And then, yeah, during your talk, you, you mentioned how it's using the same WebSocket when you navigate from one page to another page. So you're avoiding the whole reestablishing the connection. And so it's actually faster, but it's hard to benchmark that than exactly like what a user would feel as they navigate around these two different sites versus just how many website connections can it support, all that, you know, it gets kind of goofy. Yeah, those those benchmarking suites are typically focused on like requests per second and that would be stateless you know oriented 
So yeah, it's not going to be, it's an apples to oranges kind of thing, but I know that folks hosts rather hosts of these kinds of sites might be interested in, in, in what, like what kind of instances do they have to, to, to stand up to support a beacon site? What kind of a server do you have to provision for this? Yeah. But that's such a small detail. I'm really just more interested in like, <laughs> again, I'm just dreaming. I'm just dreaming. But like, <laughs> you know, five years from now, we got like, you know, marketing supporting Beacon and people are trying to like compare sites that they could set their their blog up on and WordPress is always going to be the list. And then I'm just curious, like, but if you want Beacon or if you need like live data, you know, like there's these extra features to support a Beacon deployment for them. You know, what, what would the things that they would say about it? You know, they, would they say like, oh, but you need a bigger server or, or if you have a smaller server, you know, then you can deploy Beacon, you know, on it because it's more memory efficient or something along those lines. Never, never really know. Just trying to get a gauge. But so far, looks like you guys have done an amazing job here. It's a very interesting approach to keep everything in runtime. Love that because that's massively different than a lot of the patterns we've seen today for hosting Phoenix sites you know it's typically focused on compiled strings and you just go through another deployment to update that kind of stuff so kudos to you guys for for figuring that kind of stuff out <laughs> and i love the directions you're going to for drag and drop kind of editors because that really opens it up to a whole new audience oh yeah i mean that that heeks template editor is like when i saw that i was like oh this is interesting this is like where you oh okay i can have people in different parts of the company who contributing to the content and the blog and and everything and not have to get involved with any of the deployment, no code, no nothing. And, and, and I don't have to do WordPress, right? <laughs> like, cause that's the, that's the default other way you're doing it. That is all very exciting. So how can people follow what's going on with this project? Like what's the best way to say, you know, I want to be informed. I want to, I want to know what's going on. We do have a Slack channel on the Elixir Slack. We can just hang out there. I'm, I am always there. Brian and Mike, they are there as well. So we always answer questions there. And the development of the project, you can just uh, go to the GitHub. We have many issues open and also the milestones that we are going to keep uh, updated so you can see the progress of the project. And it's also worth mentioning, if you try to use the project and you see some problem you can open an issue on GitHub or if you find something that you can fix or improve, PRs are very welcome. And even, even if the PR is not complete or not you know, 100% working, that's fine. We can help. We are always there to, to help. So contributions are, are welcome as well. And if people want to get in touch with you or just follow you online, where should they go to do that? I'm always available on Twitter. You can find the link on the on the show notes. You know, just drop a message. We can chat there. And I'm also on the Elixir forum. You can find me there. We have the posts for Beacon and the other libraries. All right. Well, thank you, Leandro. I'm glad we could finally catch up and get an update from you on what you're doing there with Beacon and the work that Dockyard is funding putting into something that's an open source project. You know, I just want to make sure we, we cover that, that this is an open source project that can benefit the whole Elixir community. And you're working on it, your time being sponsored and, and done by Dockyard. And that's really cool. You know, I know it, it will also hopefully be of benefit to Dockyard itself, you know, for them when they're coming with solutions for customers. Great work. Appreciate it. And I'm certainly looking forward to following your progress and where it goes in the future. Thank you so much. I really enjoy working on this on this project and you know being open source, just to stress this out, not only Beacon, but also all the other projects around Beacon are open source. So you can check out the code and contribute if you want to. Wonderful. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. <laughs>